some of the one another passages in the Bible. And this morning we'll take verses 4 and 5 out of Romans chapter 12, where Paul writes to the church at Rome. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office or function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So that's my title this morning, Members One of Another. This chapter is a transition chapter in the book of Romans where the theology of 11 chapters now comes to bear in this transition of chapter 12. All that theology then is to impact us in such a way that we are being members one to another beginning in the way that chapter 12 tells us we should be. In the first two verses, Paul deals with the church being a living sacrifice. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. Then beginning in verse 3 through 8, he looks at spiritual gifts. And he uses the analogy in verses 4 and 5 as a body. Like a body has many members, one body, one unit, so the church also, being many, were one body in Christ, yet all the members, though individual members that we are, we don't have the same function. And so someone may ask, why do we need spiritual gifts to serve and to teach? Well, one reason is that God inclines you to a particular direction, right? Suppose that we all the men wanted to be pastor teachers and all the sisters wanted to be exhorters. Where would be the serving? We would all just be speaking to one another all the time. So God has dispersed the gifts according to His sovereign will, And it directs us and inclines us in a certain direction. And that doesn't mean that, okay, I have the gift of pastor-teacher so that I'm not to give. That's one of the gifts listed here. Or that I'm not to exhort, I'm not to serve or do acts of mercy. No, there are multiple gifts that any one of us may have. That also means that if someone is serving or doing leading or ruling here in this chapter, as it points out, that when someone else does it, you say, well, no, that's my gift. Like, I'm the only one that can do that. No, Paul says we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So in humility, we recognize God has dispersed gifts among every member of the body, and He inclines us in directions so that the whole body comes together and serves and edifies itself in love. We would be like the characters on Chronicles of Narnia, the monopods with just one foot that we hop around on, or maybe one arm, and then the body is lacking to some degree. So he inclines us, and then inclination is so that the body would be built up, Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of the measure in every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying itself, building itself up in love. Paul had given the teaching gifts. Verse 16 is all the serving gifts, teaching and serving, those are the two categories, come together to build the body. Now suppose in a construction site there's only one skill and it's masonry. Well, you can build some nice brick walls, but you walk in the house, it has no windows, no floor, no joists, no roof, nothing but a dirt floor. So God has dispersed the gifts among the body so that we would be members one of another. And in so being members, 
with these various functions, Paul lists seven in this chapter that will cover the teaching and the serving, then what happens? We begin to serve one another. So we're going to focus our attention in verses 9 through 11 in three particular ways here in which the body then with the spiritual gifts presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, we begin to be members one to another in a specific way where the body then, the church, begins to be built up, edified in love. And of course, Paul then will start with love in verse 9. This is... This is what permeates the house that's being built. All the spiritual gifts are functioning through love. And so Paul says this in verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Now there are 13 to 15 participles beginning in verse 9. Verbs ending in ing. The first two, abhorring that which is evil, being joined to that which is good. All right? Love is to fill the house. Dissimulation means sincere, genuine, undisguised, not fake. Let your love be real, genuine, undisguised, don't have fake love. Paul and Peter will use this word, translated in the KJV, unfeigned, meaning Genuine. He would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, Remembering your unfeigned faith, your real genuine faith, which was first manifest in your mother, Lois, and then in your grandmother, Eunice, I am persuaded also in you, Timothy. Timothy was probably doubting his faith. Maybe he was wondering. Paul says, I'm convinced that your faith is real. It's not fake. I've seen the evidence in your life. 2 Timothy 1.5, he would say, the end of the commandment is love, charity. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and unfeigned faith. Real faith produces what? Charity. And then Peter would say, using the same word in 1 Peter 1.22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, which produced what? Unfeigned love. When you saw Jesus Christ in His glory, your eyes were opened by the sovereign grace of God, God, and you received the gospel. What did that real faith produce? Real love. See then that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again. You were born again. The reason anyone has a genuine faith and a genuine love that's not fake is that we have been born again by the Spirit of God. Now this real love that Paul says is to be going out one to another in the body, he says something unexpected. He uses two participles that seem sort of out of place. So, let love be real, abhorring that which is evil, being joined to that which is good. What is the relationship of good and evil to genuine, real love in the body? Members one of another. Well, the word evil can be two kinds in the Bible. The word abhor, first of all, means to detest. It means to dislike something intensely. When love is real, 
we have an intense dislike for that which is evil, that which opposes God. Now, in the Scripture, again, there's two categories. Most scholars agree, and even philosophers have noted these categories. One would be a natural evil, and the other would be moral evil. Moral evil is when the agent doing the evil is doing it intentional. Even David himself uses that word concerning himself. In Psalm 51, verse 2, or verse 4, Against thee and thee only have I committed this sin and done this evil in your sight. The sin with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah the Hittite, he said that was evil. That's moral evil. David intentionally did what he did. Natural evil is when the agents involved in the evil are not intentional. In Job 42, the writer of Job concluded the book by saying, All his friends came and bemoaned him and comforted him concerning all the evil the Lord brought upon him. God in His sovereignty brought the evil in a way that was permissive concerning moral evil and directive concerning natural evil. Natural evil, what happened? The winds came and smote the four corners of Job's children's house they were in. The wind was not moral. The wind was not intentional. That was a natural evil that came upon Job's family. In chapter 2, natural evil, Job was struck with boils from his head to his toe, a disease. That's a natural evil. Now, the agent behind the natural evil, the secondary cause, was the devil. But God was permissive, as we know from Job 1. The moral evil in Job 1 was the Sabians and the Chaldeans. They came and they stole and they murdered Job's servants and took his cattle. They were intentional. The devil was intentional. Of course, we've noted the difference in God's intention in what happened to Job. And the devil's intention was God's purpose was radically different for His glory of His name and the good of Job in displaying His mercy that James 5 tells us. The intentionality of the devil was wicked and evil. We're pointing out there in those accounts, evil being natural, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, diseases, and moral when the agents are intentionally doing acts of sin and iniquity. So what does Paul mean in our text concerning evil? Well, first of all, we should have a detest for the moral evil that exists in our culture. There is much evil that is being done. We should not be familiar with it in the sense that we're okay with it. And sometimes that's challenging. We, we see it so much. We hear it so much. We become desensitized. When we forget all moral evil is against God. It's against His name and His holiness. And so when love is real, then love is detesting moral evil. But Paul says one to another. I mean, that's in society, right? Secondly, love is real when we detest moral evil and natural evil in one another. When we see diseases touch the body of Christ or natural calamity hit us, 
understanding the sovereignty of God because we detest intensely the harm it does to our brothers and sisters, what does the body do? It comes in to help and to show real, genuine, undisguised love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Like the body, when it's harmed, when it's cut, the blood cells and all that the body is designed to do comes to the point of injury and begins to work and to repair and to restore. So if we are loving in a genuine way, when the the body is touched with pain, even in a natural way, we want to help, assist, love in a real way. But what about moral evil? If we detest moral evil, then when we see it in one another, we want to restore, confront, and exhort concerning that sin and evil. That's what love does. Love seeks the highest good, and the highest good is God. And therefore, when we see sin in one another, we detest what it does to our brothers and sisters because it cuts off relationship with God. And we detest it because it's against God. And so the body seeking to help itself in love is going to genuinely go out in confrontation, exhortation, and as we learned last week in Galatians 6.1, restoration. Brothers, if any any man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we're going out. See, when love is genuine, we genuinely want the restoration and the good of our brothers and sisters. But I think Paul has even something else in mind here. When is our love most hypocritical? When we point it out in one another, but we don't detest the the evil in our own hearts. That is the height of hypocrisy, isn't it? Here I come into church, I sing the songs of Zion. I hear the word preached. I may even say, Amen. I confront a brother and sister, but secretly I'm enjoying sin in my own heart. I don't detest my own sin, but I surely detest yours, and I'm willing to tell you about it. That is a disguised, masked love. It should not happen in the church of God. What does that mean concerning my sin? And I do have it. It means I'm, I'm hating my own sin in such a way I'm acknowledging it, I'm confessing it, and I'm fighting it. See, that's a totally different thing than regarding it in your heart where you cherish it, you love it, you live a secret life than your public life. Oh, everyone has sins of the heart. Everyone deals with pride and everyone deals with the lust of the flesh. That's not hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy when I don't detest it, I enjoy it, and I live with it. Now, what what that means is, the reason this is not genuine love, you may say, well, what if you just still love people? You're going out to people. You're helping people. Love is never in the service of another person when it's hypocrisy. It's always in the service of self. Think of Matthew 23 where Jesus confronts the hypocrites of his day, called the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Pretense means under color. 
guised or disguised. So they go into the widow's house, greet them. Before they leave, say, I'd like to have prayer with you. And they make a long prayer. Long. And in that prayer, they may be saying, Lord, how I love this widow. She's been a faithful widow. And they're going on and on in long prayer. Why? Because they devour widows' houses. Devour means to consume. House is also figurative for property, wealth. Secretly, what's disguising underneath the surface of a long, pious, religious, good-sounding prayer is money. When we are hypocritical in our love, we're not serving our brothers and sisters with love. We are always in the service of self. And Jesus makes that clear. Well, did Isaiah prophesy concerning you hypocrites? You draw nigh unto me with your lips, honor me with your mouths, but your heart is far from me. Teaching for commandments, the doctrines of men. So we're really not loving no matter what we do for another person. If it's not real love, if we're not detesting the evil in our own hearts and dealing with that, then in some way we're in the service of self. Secondly, when we're in the service of self, it won't last long. You won't keep it up. The most notorious hypocrite in the Bible is Judas Iscariot. And his fake love lasted about three years. Three years. Now, we don't know all that he said to the Savior, but it's presumable he could have said, Lord, we love what you do for us. I love these brothers, the apostles. Do you know he even rebuked Mary when she anointed the Lord's feet with the ointment? What a pious thing to do. Did he detest something in Mary? Was this genuine love? This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. That sounds like love. Mary, what are you doing? You're wasting the ointment. Of course, she wasn't wasting it. She was anointing the body of Jesus before the burial, which means she knew something was going to happen that the apostles didn't even understand at that point. We could have given this to the poor. He seems to be loving Mary, rebuking her. And then the Holy Spirit says, not that he cared for the poor, because he was a thief and he held the bag and all the money in it. He was in the service of self. And after about three years, he could take it no longer. And he sold the Lord and betrayed him. See, when love is not genuine, no matter what we do, when we are enjoying sin, not dealing with it in our own hearts, remember, we're making the distinction of having sin in our hearts and enjoying it, relishing it, leaving it there. Then we're in the service of self and that kind of love, fake love, won't last. Eventually you'll bolt. So Paul says, let love be genuine, abhorring that which is evil. Yes, in one another, but also in ourselves, so that we may deal with sin, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh, in our brothers and sisters, and in ourselves. And then he says, cleaving to that which is good, being joined. Now what's sort of a mystery here is the participle here is passive. That makes you kind of shake your head a few minutes and say, what's going on here? Abhorring evil is active. Cleaving to good is passive. Now, I'm going to demonstrate 
physically, how you fulfill a passive verb by cleaving to that which is good. You ready? That's it. You do nothing. When you're passive, you do nothing. Why did Paul use a passive verb? Likely. Because when your love is real, it's the Holy Spirit filling your soul with the love of God by faith. And out of that love that He is working, that He is doing, you're being joined passively that's leading you then to promote that which is good in one another. Recognizing the good, seeing the good, promoting the good as opposed to that which is evil. We live in a society that calls evil good and good evil. They put light for darkness, darkness for light, evil or sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet, doing what is right in their own eyes and doing what is wise in their own sight. But when we fear God, the proverb says in chapter 3, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, depart from evil. And when the Holy Spirit is filling you with the love of God that delights the soul, that's joining us to good so that we recognize, we see it, and then we promote it in one another. Beloved, let our love be genuine, sincere, not fake, abhorring that which is evil, cleaving to that which is good, and then the next one in verse 10. Be genuine, be kindly affectioned to one another. With brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. So we'll take two out of verse 10. First, be kindly affection one to another. And second, be honoring one another. Be honoring one another. Kindly affection is a Greek compound word. We get two eyes together. Philos is friendship bond. Storge. The word storge is a Greek word not used by itself in the Bible. Storgos here, philostorgos, friendship bond, family bond. It's the bond between parents and a children, even a husband and a wife. It's a tender affection that even is to exist among human beings in a family context. Paul says to the church, be kindly affectioned with brotherly love. The Greek word for brotherly love is identical to the city Philadelphia. It's just pronounced differently. It's got all the same Greek letters. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That is to permeate the church of the living God. Now, it would probably be helpful here to look at the antonym in Scripture, which is a negative article, which means without, and storgos, which is family affection. And in the English, Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 3, it's what? Without natural affection. Without family affection. That's the culture we live in. Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness without natural affection is the upshot. 2 Timothy 3, but this know that in the last times, perilous days shall come, perilous times, without natural affection. One of the marks of dangerous times is disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, and a storgos, without natural affection. 
Now, if you compare those two passages, and these are, that's the antonym to having kindly affection one to another, you look at the source in Romans 1, what does Paul say there? We've changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the glory of corruptible men. We've changed the truth of God into a lie, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And what's at the apex of the creature that we worship? What's the highest pecking order? Self-image. We worship ourselves. The image of corruptible man. Now recently we noted that in a narcissist society, we use the internet and it bends the whole world to the enthronement of our own desires. And we begin to worship the image of self. We exalt self. We enthrone self. Desire, we see in our culture, becomes everything. That's the one thing we worship above everything. And then Romans 1 says, Wherefore God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts. What leads to being without natural affection? The lust of our own hearts. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, men shall be lovers of themselves without natural affection. You see the comparison. The desires of your own heart, the love of your own self, leads the bond of affection to be destroyed and torn apart. And we've noted even the natural bond of a mother towards her unborn child is gone. People are hostile about the right to kill their child. Hostile. No natural affection. Fathers abandon mothers and abandon their children. Why? Lovers of themselves. Lovers of what they want out of life. Excessive self-absorption. Fathers who should have an instinctive bond towards all children to protect them are practicing pedophilia. Why? Lovers of themselves, which when God gives us over, it goes deeper and deeper. Children rise up against parents and now they murder their parents. Husbands and wives abusing one another. There's no natural affection. It's all, it's, it's a storgos. And in that context, God demands that in His church there is Kindly affection, one to another. This is the place where the world should be able to look in and say, these people are very fond of one another. They have a, a brotherly and sisterly affection toward one another. Right? Now, what is Paul saying? We should recognize and see each other as part of the same family, adopted into the same family by the same grace, free grace of God, on the same pathway going to the same end, with the same Father, with the same Savior, all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. Somebody says, blood is thicker than water. And yes, whose blood are we talking about? The blood of Jesus Christ. If you've had a miserable childhood, if your parents have forsaken you, David says, when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord takes me up. Jesus told Peter, Peter, no one is forsaken house, 
father, mother, brother, and sister, but what they will not receive a hundredfold in this life, what? Brothers, sisters, mothers, and in the life to come, eternal life. There is to be a bond in the house of God because of having a common father. This bond goes on into eternity even though all other bonds will be laid aside. Your marriage will be laid aside. Your immediate family will be no longer recognized in heaven. It will be the family of God, the redeemed saints of God together. And so God wants us to be acting like here what's going to be in heaven, and that's that we're having an affection one for another. 1 John 5, 1, John says, Whosoever that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So to be born of God... There's two effects of being born of God. One, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe He is the Son of God. You believe He's God manifest in the flesh. That's the fruit of the new birth. Number two. And he that loveth him that begat, it's God the Father, He's the one that caused you to be born again, loveth also him that's begotten of God. That's the second effect. It's like in your own family. You just happen to like the person That's your brother and sister that's been born of the same two parents that you have. That's what John is saying. There is an affection that comes one to another because we've been born by God into the same family. So if you love God and you don't love your neighbor or your brother, John calls into question your new birth over and over in 1 John. Now why would he do that? Because the result of being born again, Jesus is God. Number two, you love God, you love the one that's begotten by God. And that's every other believer. That that expands beyond this local assembly. Wherever you find a believer on the planet, that's your brother and sister. I remember years ago when travel among Christians to conferences and meetings was much more prevalent and I would go to uh, church meetings with my wife and some of the small children. We had dragged them along. They probably thought we were abusing them. We, we did a lot of travel during that time. And invariably, I would meet Christians. They would bring me into their home, and they treated me like they had known me all their lives. I had never met these people. It's because we, we shared a common faith. God says, that's what I want to see in the church. People that have a strong affection for one another because we have the same Savior, we have the same God. Would you say that your kindly affection to the brothers and sisters in this room, do you feel a warmth toward them because you recognize they have the same Savior, warts and all that we have and all all our problems and, and sins we struggle with, them are my people as... Abraham said. Or as David said, uh, these are the people on the earth in whom is all my delight. David delighted in the people of God. Why? Because they shared the same God, the same Father. Now how is this even possible? We would all recognize there are some challenges there. and If we just depended on our own affection, we would be woefully short of having an affection, a tender love for one another. Well, Peter, you remember... In 1 Peter 1 said, add then to your faith brotherly kindness. And that's the word, we get the word Philadelphia. 
So be kindly affection one another with brotherly love or kindness. See, besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith brotherly kindness. So you've got to add it. It's not just going to be there warm and affectionate. You need to add to your faith. How do you add it? He said you've been given precious succeeding promises. You've been given all things you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through knowing Christ, knowing His brotherly love displayed in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit takes that same love and presses it on our souls so that we begin to put it on. But Peter's point is, yes, the Holy Spirit's filling us with love, but we're not passive. We have to be active in seeking to do this. So we pray and ask God to give us a love for one another that we may not currently have. It may be cold. Lord, stir my affections for my brothers and sisters. Help me to see the grace of God in them. Help me to love them as being part of the same family. Through the bond of love. You know, the bond of a mother to a child, storge love is the kind that overlooks all human distinctions. In other words, a mother loves her child. A father too, regardless of what they look like, any weaknesses, inabilities, even what people may call abnormalities, physically, emotionally, whatever. A mother loves her child. That's storge. There's a bond that she has. So Paul says, being members one of another, we need to have genuine love, which means we need to be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Next, in honor, preferring one another. Honor sounds like one of those old-fashioned words, doesn't it? Honor is a disappearing word in our society. Not because it's just vanishing, but because it's being attacked. Attacked. The word means to value someone or something. It means to show deference, reverence, and respect. God says the world ought to be able to look into the church and see people honoring one another. Showing honor. Respect. All honor begins and ends with God. Revelation 4, 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Everything exists for the pleasure of God. Everything. You exist for His glory. The birds exist for His glory. The dust exists for His glory. Every created thing is for the pleasure of God and He's worthy to be valued and honored. And because He's worthy of honor, He then tells us to show honor appropriately, horizontally, to the people in Scripture He demands that we show honor. Even Romans 13 says what? In the context of governmental authorities, give that which is due, that which is appropriate. Tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, honor to whom honor. Which starts with the government, right? The world should see Christians being respectful of all government officials. That's what God demands. 
Why? What if they're scoundrels? Maybe. Because God ordained the powers that be. Romans 13. So we honor God. He's worthy. We show honor. We show value to institutions and people who don't deserve honor because that's irrelevant. God says show it. So 1 Peter 2 verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. We know the king was a scoundrel. Nero was worse than a scoundrel. All Christians, the ones you know that he's the source of your persecution, he's the reason you're going to be burned, he's the reason you're thrown into the gladiator or the uh, Colosseum, you honor him. He didn't say affirm sin. He didn't say affirm his evil. He said honor, show respect to the office. Honor every human being. There's a dignity that all human beings have because they retain the image of God in them. And that needs to be honored, although we cannot affirm the lifestyle of many. We don't affirm our own sin. God made man in His own image and endowed them with honor because something about the image of God is still retained in humanity, although it's marred and it's fallen. Like a castle in ruins... The castle is absolutely fallen. It's devastated. But you know something great there once stood. Likewise, with all humanity, we are fallen. And that that fallenness is complete and total. Yet, the image of God, according to Genesis 9, we are not to kill man after the fall. Why? Because he's made in the image of God. There is a respect and a dignity we show people, even in their opposition to Christ. Not affirming evil, but we show honor where honor is due. Whether it's the king is supreme, governors who are sent by him, and we honor all men. Next, we show honor to parents. Ephesians 6.2 Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor thy father and thy mother. It is right, children, that you honor your mother today. You should get her a card. You should tell her. God expects you to honor your parents. To show that you value them with the way you speak to them and your actions toward them. Now rest assured... Exodus 20, Romans 3, make it clear, we have all failed, right? Anybody here want to stand up and say, I've done that perfectly? Well, you are self-righteous, and I don't want to be beside you when you meet Jesus, right? (laughs) Nobody's going to say that to a Christian, right? See, we're, we're trusting God and moving in this pathway. I hope you honor your mother today. I hope you shower her with honor, right? Honor your... Father, your mother. Who else are we to honor? Husbands, you honor your wives. First Peter 3, verse 7 or 8, somewhere right there. Likewise, husbands, dwell with them, wives, according to knowledge, giving honor as unto the weaker vessel and as heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers 
are not cut off. Imagine if every man's prayer who's married here is completely cut off from God. What kind of church will we be? Absolutely severed from God. He says, I'm not listening to you. I won't hear you. You go show honor to your wife and then I'll hear your prayers. We would be anemic. You want to know if you're showing honor? Just ask her. A wife knows when you honor her. And she knows when you're not. And unless you think your wife is a complete liar in everything she says, listen to what she says. She's likely going to say, you're really doing good here, but I just don't feel like you value me. Is that, is that self-love? Because she says, no, because God says, give her honor. Give her honor. Wives, Ephesians chapter 5. See then that wives reverence their husbands. Reverence is a form of honor. Do you honor your husband? Say, well, he's not worth it. Amen. He's not. This is God telling us. In a culture where honor is gone. He wants you to honor your husband. In an appropriate way. Not in an idolatrous way. Not in a sinful way. He wants you to show honor to Him. Not because He needs it. Be careful, men. You don't fall for that one. No. God has honored you with salvation. He has honored you with His presence. That's all the honor you need. So we don't need honor. God says do it. All I need is Jesus. And that's what you need too. So honor one another. Honor widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. There's monetary issues in those two words with widows, but there's reverence to those that lead you. Am I just kind of patting my own pocket here? Maybe. I'll take the risk to tell you what God says. I'll just have to take that risk. And God will take care of me. If I'm trying to get honor for myself, right? Or, or elders, right? Let as many servants who are under the yoke, 1 Timothy 6.1, count their masters worthy of honor, that the name of God, that His honor be not blasphemed and vilified. That just servant to master, employee to employer. You honor your employer. I don't care how he treats you. There are laws for that. There are ways to deal with that. But you show respect to a man or woman who doesn't deserve your respect. You know why? God demands it. You are showing something about yourself that's not you when you do that. Because nobody knows we can't do that. And of course, everything in Romans 12 from not returning evil for evil is not of us, is it, beloved? It's all from the grace of God that He supplies. So in all these ways, we are told to honor one another in a culture and in a society that doesn't honor. The current generation is so disrespectful to authorities. Canceling police, not standing up for the national anthem. You say, well, that's political. Is it? Would God have you honor fallen soldiers and men and women that have given themselves for this country? Would He want you to do that? I tell you what, if you're on a sports team and everybody kneels down, you stand up and put your hand on your heart. 
You show honor. People know when you honor them. When you say to a vet, thank you for your service, he knows you're honoring him. And God says, that's right. It's appropriate. This culture who's destroying the nuclear family, why? Because of the Rousseau-Freud Marxist views that the individual to have happiness needs to express itself and any structures that oppose it tear them down. And guess what? The nuclear family just opposes it, right? And so the family is being torn down, honor is being destroyed, and people are disrespectful as a way of life. Now, again, in the church of Jesus Christ, where we are tempted, we at times let disrespectful words come out of our mouth. We have actions that are disrespectful at times. So we, we confess it, we own it, and we turn back to the God and ask forgiveness and ask it of one another. That's just life in the family of God. So what is this honor specifically? It means to show appreciation for the people you value. Because you're affirming the grace of God in them, particularly in the church. So how would you do that? With your words, first of all. When you appreciate someone, what do you say? Thank you. And that's just mutual. All of us should be recognizing the service of the Lord in one another. Even if it's so small, like the church at Corinth, where Paul did. Paul had to get his, I don't know, his microscope out. So I've really got to look. He found the grace of God. It was there. And he affirmed it. And he acknowledged the grace of God in them. So with our words, we, we speak thanksgiving to one another. We acknowledge, we recognize. We also speak respectfully to one another. There's a way that which we should speak to one another that is not degrading, belittling, criticizing, critical, tearing down. Not flattery. God doesn't condone that. What is appropriate? What is the language? That's appropriate. It's not a froward mouth. God hates that. He loves words of honor. See? So we appreciate one another. We value one another. We recognize one another. We tell one another. And then we do acts of kindness one to another. You know, that's when you really appreciate someone. All that they've been to you. Like a mother on Mother's Day. Not only do you tell her, you just help her. Just go out and do things. You know she wants you to do this. I so honor my mother and appreciate her. I'm just going to do that. See? That's what God wants. Everything within us, in our flesh, is working in the opposite direction. Sometimes you say, well, I would have. I just didn't think about it. It took me a long time to figure out what that meant when I kept saying that. Honey, I, I, I'm sorry I didn't do that. I just didn't think about it. What were you thinking about? I think my pressure, my, my, my activities I need to do, my, the, the jobs, the, the work, i got to go back and study the Bible. Oh, you were thinking about yourself. Yes, that's exactly right. See, All the ways we try to excuse something we need to own. The fact is, if I'm thinking about myself, I'm not thinking about you. So it requires that we think about one another. If we're going to honor one another. And then we, starting today, ask God to help us to show Genuine honor. Love that's real is kindly affection. Love that's real wants to honor. Acts 28, when Paul was on Miletus after the shipwreck, he had healed several people of their diseases. When he left, Paul said, they honored us with many honors. You know what that means? Paul knew and he felt the honor. 
If it was inappropriate, Paul would tell him, look, I'm not God. Stand up. You need to serve the true and living God. But they honored him. I don't know what they did. Maybe they said things to him. They gave him something. Maybe they gave him an honorable citizenship on the island of Miletus. I don't know. Paul knew it. And people know when you show them honor. And so we should do it. Now, the next thing he says, preferring one another. The word here means to go out in front, lead the way, get in front, be a front runner. If there's ever a place in the Bible that we could sanction competition, here it is. You've been looking for it? We found it. Be the best, be the front runner, be the champion at showing honor, which means you have to put your own honor on the shelf. If you're more concerned about your own honor, then you won't be the best at showing honor. So you have to think little of yourself, think more of others, and Paul says, get out in front at showing honor. And then lastly, just in closing, verse 11, bringing all this to conclusion as to how this is done. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Sluggish, slothful business is, can mean diligence or zeal. Don't be sluggish in zeal. Rather, fervent can mean aglow, heat, or boil in the Spirit. In other words, don't be like the pot of water. You know, the, the, the flame is, is on high and nothing is happening. It's just stagnant. Don't be slothful in zeal, in passion. Don't be like water that's just sitting there. I, I know it's going to boil eventually, but... Be like the water that the heat has transferred through the metal. It's heated the molecules and they're bumping one another and it's a glow. It's boiling. Be that way. And then Paul says, serving the Lord. And I'm going to close with this point. Serving the Lord is key to everything we've said. How do you serve the Lord? I think I'm serving the Lord. First of all, you need to know you can't serve the Lord. If you think you can serve the Lord, you're already on the wrong, wrong path. Joshua 24 says, Joshua said, you can't serve the Lord. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Stop serving me. But yet over and over we say, we're supposed to serve the Lord. And this is what it means in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we serve the Lord through the service of His mercies. We serve the Lord through the service of His mercy to us. New morning mercy. Faithful mercy. Lamentations 3. Mercy follows you all the days of your life. Psalm 23. The sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55. The mercy that's free and sovereign still. Romans chapter 9. You can't serve God without mercy. So be in the service of the Lord by the Lord's service and be in the service of the Lord by the Lord's sacrifice. See, if you present your bodies a living sacrifice, bodies, plural, sacrifice, singular. Paul's saying the church at Rome needs to be one unified, singular sacrifice through the gifts of Edifying itself in love so that the whole world sees a corporate sacrifice, singular through many individuals, plural, and the many gifts. Why would God think our sacrifice is holy and acceptable? It means pleasing. 
He finds pleasure in our sacrifice. When? When his sacrifice is serving our sacrifice. Without that, he has no pleasure in our sacrifice. That is, when our faith is resting in the sacrifice of Christ alone, in the mercy of God alone, then and only then can we serve out of the strength that He supplies. 1 Peter chapter 4. So, beloved, let us be serving the Lord with grace and strength and mercies, plural, out of the first 11 chapters of this book, and then we will find the grace to have more brotherly affection. We will find the grace to have brotherly love. We will find out of the mercies of God the power to serve and to honor one another as we should do in an appropriate way. And we will find all that we need in Christ not to be slothful in passion, but burning a glow like boiling water in the service of God. Do you need help in that? Am I the only one that needs help? In it? Do you ever feel like sluggish spiritually? I just... You cry out to God, Lord, may your mercy stir me anew this morning because they're new every day and make me to be the very kind of person you call me to be. That's grace. That's glory. That's the God of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and amazing grace to us. And as we hear your word preached again, we see how fall short, uh, short uh, we come of that. We recognize, Lord, our need for you, but we're encouraged And we have hope because of your mercies, because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the sufficiency of who you are and your word and your delight to be fullness to empty sinners, to be strength to those that have or need help, to be love and power to those that are desperate, to be a father to those who are childlike in faith so that you get glory for all the mercy you supply, and the church gets the help that they desperately need if we're going to have this affection, give this honor, and serve you in a way that our hearts are engaged with a genuine kind of love. Lord, please help us. Make that a reality, a growing reality, this coming week in the life of every person here as we want to, with our bodies and with our spiritual gifts that you have given, Present one corporate living sacrifice to a world that shows no honor, to a world without natural affection growingly. May they see in the church the love of a Savior and the glory of a Father who has given Himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.